0: This evening what I would like to speak about is meeting with Mara and in this talk I would like to draw upon a number of the aspects of the story of the Buddha Siddhartha. When we think of the Buddha, for many people the thought that comes to mind is an image like this statue behind me. And the Buddha somehow seems to us, because of this image, as some sort of superhuman being, probably didn't have to worry about uh, restlessness in his sittings, didn't have to worry about how he looked in his meditation, you know, kind of beyond all these rather mundane concerns, probably never spilled his soup in the dining room. But I think in doing that, you know, we tend to kind of make into an abstract a very powerful story. We may honor Siddhartha as a historical symbol, but in his abstract, his story may seem really very far removed from our own. And yet, the story of Siddhartha has so many parallels to our own story and our own journey. And in many ways, the very story of Siddhartha's awakening, the powerful awakening, that we all know and hear about, reveals the steps we take in our own journey. Although this path is very unique to each one of us, because we are in many ways unique human beings, and although there is no standard map for developing or deepening in meditation there are certainly some very universal principles which are part of every spiritual journey. And sometimes in looking at aspects of Siddhartha's story, we are helped to see some of the challenges that we meet in a more profound context. And I'd just like to go back a little bit in Siddhartha's life As you are most probably aware of the story of the Buddha, he grew up in a life of what was then, of course, incredible luxury. Here it would just probably be middle class. His life was really not so different from ours. had a life of choice. For many of us, we have a life of choice, and this is actually luxury in the world. And within that life of relative ease, Siddhartha conceived of a profound sense of his own possibilities, conceived of an intuitive vision of his possibilities, of a way of being in himself, a way of being in the world, that was really possibly beyond birth and death, that was really possibly beyond all limitation. The start of his journey didn't start really with anything very special at all. It started with what is called being alive and being aware of being alive and what being alive means. Siddhartha's journey started with just seeing what was involved in living in this world as a human being, that living in this world as a human being with a body and with a mind means experiencing not only pleasure and not only joy, but also inevitably a certain amount of pain. That as human beings we undergo sickness, we undergo aging, and of course we undergo death. It was the very connection, clear connection, just with what these aspects of life meant, that really started Siddhartha on his journey to seek for a way of being which was beyond the boundaries of form and limitation, to seek essentially for freedom. As in Siddhartha's story, in our own stories, our own lives, we probably have all experienced moments in our lives which have actually inspired us to begin on this journey ourselves, that have inspired us to take the first steps to understanding the nature of pain and its cause and its end. We have all probably experienced in our lives powerful moments of intuition, which have awakened within us a sense of our own possibilities. These moments of awakening which are often very profound are also totally unpredictable. Sometimes these moments of awakening are rooted in pain, and sometimes they are rooted in joy. We all have experienced loss in our lives. Loss of friends, separation, death of those we care for, loss of our own identities, And in the pain and in the grief that follows loss, we are more clearly connected with really the utter uncertainty, the unreliability of life. And that clear connection that can happen when we are so open and vulnerable really touches our heart, can really touch our hearts. And lead us to ask, what does it mean to be alive? Is this all that it means to go through one period of pain after another? Is this what living is about, to survive moments of pain so we can connect with moments of pleasure? Or is there more to being awake? Is there more to being alive than all this? We have experienced, probably all of us, moments when the order of our world and our own sense of control disintegrates. Disintegrates in many ways. When we end relationships we've relied upon, when we don't get what we want, when we fail at reaching goals we've invested a great deal in, when our own sense of security is questioned. So often we experience what disintegration and disorder is all about. And we have variety of feelings about and a variety of reactions. Sometimes we feel bereft, we feel disillusioned, we feel disappointed, we feel deprived or abandoned. And in the midst of these feelings, I think that we also know that these moments are teachings for us. They are life's lessons. They offer us the possibilities of new beginnings, Every single ending in our life offers us the possibility of new beginnings. To live differently, to see, to feel more deeply, more profoundly, in a more aware way. But our moments of awakening are not only revealed to us through pain, also through joy. We have probably all also had in our lives moments of such profound and deep connection with nature that our mind's chatter is brought to a standstill. Sometimes just the song of a bird or the sight of a tree opening its buds in spring. Sometimes when our hearts are clear and our minds are clear, we feel so touched that we have a deep sense of connectedness and attunement. Sometimes we have it with other people. When we can let go of our judgments and our images, and the sense of separation falls away, and we really feel a close heart connection that's without investment and without expectation of another. And there is both peace and there is joy in that. And sometimes we experience those moments just alone with ourselves in very unpredictable ways. When we give ourselves a break from distractedness, when we give ourselves a break from doing and from busyness, sometimes to our great surprise, we can connect with such a deep inner feeling of connectedness, of richness, of wholeness, that we know the futility of just chasing pleasure in the world. And we can know a great stillness and peace. These moments of awakening can be incredibly powerful. And they lead us to question so much. And sometimes they lead us to make radical changes in our lives. They awaken us to really want to explore the mystery of being, the sense of possibility, the sense of vision within ourselves. It is true that there are many times when we do react very strongly to disintegration and disorder by as quickly as possible trying to reestablish control, trying to reestablish security, trying to reestablish some new identity that we can hold on to. These moments happen. But often it happens that moments of loss of control and disintegration really opens our eyes, opens our eyes to a sense of possibility where we don't yearn necessarily to return to what we know and what is familiar and what is safe, but where we feel so much more open to explore the horizons in our lives, to live consciously to live in an awake way and in that opening, in that willingness to explore, in that willingness to begin anew, there is often a letting go of habit, a letting go of demands of how I must be, how the world must be, how other people must be. This is a major renunciation and it is so similar I mean, in a different form, to the renunciation of Siddhartha, of letting go what is known and familiar and opening ourselves to not knowing. It happens when you come on a retreat, whether you think in those terms or not. There's no way you can control what happens here. No way you can make this situation conform to your desires and demands. There is an entering into, even if we're dragged into it, (laughs) not knowing. A willingness to be in that, and it is a major renunciation. This is unfamiliar territory, and there are no guarantees. We wouldn't guarantee that you're going to leave this retreat happy and peaceful and blissful. I hope so. (laughs) There are no guarantees and we can offer no promises. This is your journey. This is your path. Making that transition into what we do not know, into what is unfamiliar to us, is really difficult. It's not easy. And in the beginning, and often very far from the beginning, we encounter doubts, we encounter fears, we encounter problems. And there are many times when we just get diverted and sidetracked by our own conditioning, by our own desires, and by our own aversions. In the story of Siddhartha, it says that, well, it's recorded, The story is that he basically spent six years struggling. He spent, you know, you wouldn't be here a few days, this is nothing. (laughs) Spent six years struggling, living as an ascetic, believing that was the way, that was the truth. Spent those years starving himself, abusing himself, punishing himself. Till he could hardly sit up, never mind, meditate, I didn't know what he was doing. But he was suffering. Make sure he was suffering, believing. But his belief was that through that punishment and through that self abuse, he would overcome ego. He would overcome self, believing that he would overcome imperfection through the power of his control. His willpower, his suppression, and his self-denial took six years for him to realize that this was not the way to liberation, that the practice of control basically leads to the perfection of control. The practice of self-negation basically leads to the perfection of self-negation. The practice of struggle basically leads to the expertise in struggle. In many ways I feel we can be rather grateful to Siddhartha for having spent that time because it relieves us of the need (laughs) to follow the same path, hopefully. But it is a hard lesson for us to learn the very rules and the very ethics of our culture tell us over and over again that the way to get ahead is to struggle, to be ambitious, to overcome, to transcend. We are told over and over again that our willpower and our control brings the results that we want in our lives and no one else is going to do it for us. You've got to do it for yourself and you've got to strive hard if you're going to get anywhere at all. Those rules don't apply here. Not only do they not apply, they don't work here. And the biggest, one of the biggest renunciations we make in this path is our renunciation of control, of manipulation, of forcing, and of striving. Renouncing the belief that I am going to bring about liberation, that I am going to bring about the end of separation and pain through my striving, through my power, through my control." It's a big renunciation. One of the aspects of Siddhartha's story plays a very central role in his story, and I'm afraid it also features in ours, is the symbol of Mara. Mara is a kind of archetypal symbol of delusion and ignorance. Mara is the symbol of that which distracts us, that leads us to doubt the authenticity of our own quest, of our own selves, Mara is a symbol of the powerful forces of our minds and of our conditioning that undermine us, that lead to conflict, to pain and to division. And I'd like to read you the account of Siddhartha's encounter with Mara. In the Buddhist story, it says that Mara shadowed Siddhartha throughout his journey in a number of different disguises and in wearing a variety of different faces. And that on the eve of his awakening, Mara gathered together all his forces for a last-stand battle with Siddhartha. And I'd like to use Joseph Campbell's description of this battle because he's so colorful. It is also true that every spiritual story, or the story of every great spiritual journey, including your own, features this story in one form or another. It is said that the Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree and was straightway approached by Mara. The dangerous god appeared, mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and in the rear as far as the confines of the world. It was nine leagues high. The protecting deities of the universe took flight. But the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree, and Mara assailed him. And the story goes on to describe the ways in which Siddhartha was attacked and the forces within Siddhartha that Mara attempted to evoke. First was fear. Siddhartha was attracted by pain and by darkness. But the missiles were transformed into celestial flowers and ointment by the power of Siddhartha's wisdom and compassion. Then loneliness, craving, yearning, and lust were presented and called forth. But Siddhartha was undisturbed. Then Mara finally challenged Siddhartha's right to be sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, attempted to evoke self-doubt. He asked Siddhartha, what gives you the authority to t- call yourself a seeker? What gives you the right to be sitting to beneath this tree? And whatever gives you the right to believe that there is such a thing as enlightenment and that you are qualified to understand it? Siddhartha's response was to touch the earth before him with his fingertips, and thus bid the goddess earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. And she did with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell to its knees. The The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world, scattered garlands. In our journeys, our own journeys, we meet Mara again and again. Not the mythical Mara with all its armies and weapons, although it probably feels that way sometimes. But we encounter within ourselves powerful forces inwardly, that lead us into valleys, into shadows, into darkness. We experience boredom and we doubt the worth of what we're doing. We experience uncertainty and doubt and ask whether it is really possible to be awake or whether this is not all some fancy spiritual idea of somebody's. Mm -hmm. We ask ourselves whether it's possible for us to understand anything really very deep. We meet ill will and judgment and negativity inwardly and outwardly. And when we meet that within ourselves, sometimes we doubt our own worth and value and question whether it's possible for us to really ever experience loving kindness or compassion. We meet anger and we meet rage that exiles us from oneness and connectedness. We meet sloth, And so it seems that when we're not floating around in sloth, we're lost in pride congratulating ourselves about how wonderful we are to have overcome sloth. (laughs) And sometimes it seems that the hosts of Mara are uncountable. We call them by different names. We call them hindrances, problems, obstacles, imperfections, difficulties. In fact, a whole range, a whole vocabulary has been invented by meditators to describe who Mara is. And sometimes it seems we know Mara more by its presence than by its absence. And it can seem that it's so endless. You know, we work with anger, feel we finally got somewhere, and up pops pride. We work with pride, we feel that we finally get somewhere. And up pops greed, you know, and when greed seems to disappear, it seems to be replaced by something else. And it seems to so end this, and sometimes it seems we reassure ourselves and we say, well, oh, it's just a question of time. It's just a question of time. A few more retreats, a mm-hmm. few more years, a few more sittings, a few more teaching, it's a question of time. And eventually we'll get to the bottom of this Host of Mara, time has nothing to do with it. Time has absolutely nothing to do with transformation. It's helpful to let go of that notion. Sometimes it seems that we deepen in meditation, and some of our more surface difficulties do pass away. You sit, you don't have such a problem with agitation, with dullness. But sometimes it seems that as soon as they surface away, what we start doing is we start encountering much more powerful forces of conditioning. We meet fear. A number of people have spoken about fear today. It becomes something you become a little intimate with in meditation. There's the fear of losing ourselves, the fear of not having anything to hold on to, The fear of being extinguished as an individual. It's a very powerful fear. You sit and you will see the jigsaw puzzle of your individuality begin to break up. The glue melts as it begins to break up. You will see that it's sometimes accompanied by powerful grasping, looking for something to hold on to, looking for something to give security, something to give identity, something for reassurance, anything for an antidote to emptiness. And you meet very powerful forces in this journey of doubt, questioning the authenticity of your own wisdom, mistrusting your own quest and your own capacity to bring it to fruition. Sometimes you just don't know what's going on in a retreat. Sometimes you just can hardly recognize yourself. You know, when you start having fantasies about throttling your roommate or you know, fantasies about giving the talk tomorrow night after you're enlightened today and you sometimes you can hardly recognize this mind that is producing these extraordinary Extraordinary obsessions, and fantasies, and images. The good news is that you are not turning into some horrible, raging lunatic. You're not becoming a monster through meditation. But what happens when you sit is that much of the armor that has been a companion in our lives falls away. And in falling away, there is a surfacing of tendencies, and patterns, and cravings, and resistances in ways that we are acutely aware of them. And it's not that we have to make a detailed list, like a shopping list, of what we need to change, and what we need to improve, and what we need to get rid of. We don't need to then create an agenda of improvement. This is not awareness. This is the watchdog. This is the sensor at work. When we are, when you do experience this sense of opening and armor dropping away, that is where it is important to resist the temptation, to parade out our habitual strategies of control and striving and denial. What we need to be concerned with what we really need to give attention to, is to how wisely and how compassionately and how clearly we can approach this meeting with Mara. In the story of Siddhartha, it's worth noting that it is an encounter with Mara. He didn't bring out his weapons, his strategies, engage in endless battle with Mara. Rather, he was able to say to Mara, I know you. I know you. I do not believe in you. I do not subscribe to you. And the authority, the only authority he needed to do that, he expressed through just touching the earth with his hand. It was an expression of his trust in his own vision, his vision of his possibilities, his expression of the sanctuary that he had in his own faith, his own energy, his own understanding. And that faith and that vision, that trust, that inner sanctuary of our own wisdom is what disempowers the forces of Mara. This is a hard lesson for us to learn in meditation. It's a hard lesson for us to learn in our lives that we do not have to create any opponents. That we do not have to battle with any opponents. That the opponents so often that we encounter in meditation, they are born of our reactions. They are born of our unwillingness to open our hearts to what is. They are born of our unwillingness just to know and connect with what is here before us. It is only when we see and create opponents that we then enter into war and into struggle, whether it is inwardly or outwardly. It's only when we have opponents that we create these divisions between what is spiritual and what is not between what is acceptable and what is not in ourselves. It is only when we have opponents that we have these dual standards of what is holy and what is unworthy. And on the basis of these opponents, we also have our signposts of progress and of failure, our yearning to reach goals and our disappointment when we fail to. It is only when we have opponents that we feel the need to overcome, to transcend, to use willpower and to strive. We need not have any opponents in this path. We need enter into no battles. The opponents are born within our own reactions and within our own closing down. It's not to say that everything in the world is acceptable. It's not to say that there are no powerful negative forces in the world and possibly within ourselves that erode our well-being and the well-being of our planet. They, there are. But struggle is not the way to understanding. And battling and war is not the way to compassion. This path that we are on is not a struggle between good and evil where good always triumphs. That only happens in cartoons. This is a different world of awakening, of being awake, to knowing, to seeing, to understanding, to knowing that that is enough. And this is the place of trust. It is hard for us to accept that liberation is not dependent in any way upon making ourselves perfect. Liberation is not dependent upon refining and polishing our personal histories, our personalities, our minds, our bodies, our thoughts, or anything else. Liberation is not dependent upon getting rid of what doesn't conform to our spiritual expectations. It's not always easy to trust that awareness and understanding alone is powerful enough to dissolve conflict and delusion. But it is. It simply is. But we are so accustomed to endless doing, to using willpower and thinking that willpower and effort alone will produce the changes that we want and desire. It's not to say that we're not asked to make any effort or not asked to use energy. We are. We used to ask... Us to use an enormous amount of energy in this practice and really cultivate a great deal of effort. But it's the effort to see and the effort to understand, the energy to be awake with what is here right with us. It takes an immense energy. And that energy comes from faith. It comes from trust. It comes from a vision of our own possibilities. Otherwise, you would have packed your bags on the first day. We need to learn how to rest at ease in this moment. We need to learn the path of non-resistance, of non-judgment, of non-struggle, the path of learning how to extend calmness and openness an awareness just to what arises, to be able to unconditionally say, I welcome you. You are welcome. To be able to say that within the field of our own experience. This is the path of traveling lightly. This is the path of not having any opponents. In so many ways, every time we sit and every time we walk, we sit and we walk beneath our own particular Bodhi tree, that moment is precious. Every moment brings, offers us the opportunity to bring our capacities for being awake, for being clear. Every moment offers us the opportunity to bring our power of trust and vision to it. It's all that we need. It doesn't matter if we don't or do have a long history of spiritual experience and a bulging portfolio of spiritual credentials. Sometimes this just gets in the way. All that we actually need is awareness. All that we actually need is is to be awake. We have met and do meet Mara amidst our doubts and fears, which are sometimes very strong we meet Mara amidst our beliefs in limitation that tells us that I can't or I am. What happens when we don't turn away from those thoughts or feelings and we don't subscribe to them? They have very little power. That non-resistance and that openness brings great calmness. It brings great happiness. It brings great stillness and joy. In Siddhartha's story, after his six years of basically beating himself up beneath in a variety of different places, he realized he was really no closer to liberation than the day that he began. And his whole approach underwent a radical transformation. Siddhartha reflected upon a time he'd experienced when he was a boy sitting in his father's field and watching the farmers plant and plow the fields. And he remembered how extraordinarily happy he had been at that moment. That nothing special was happening, there was nothing particularly intriguing going on, but he remembered experiencing a depth of peace and contentment. And he also remembered how much he had feared that contentment, equating it with pleasure. But as he reflected, he realized that that happiness had nothing to do with gratification, it had nothing to do with grasping. It was the happiness of seclusion. It was the happiness of being alone and yet not alone, alone and yet also connected. It was the happiness of not wanting and not resisting, of being gladly present, of just being gladly and willingly present. And he realized the significance of that happiness, not the happiness of having arrived somewhere or the pleasure of getting, but the happiness of being awake. This is so much the key to our own awakening and to our own understanding, a quality of contentment, a willingness to be present, a lightness and an openness of heart that is present when we are unconditionally welcoming what is. That that happiness of heart brings us great intimacy with this moment. See how much stillness there is when we're not either looking for something or turning away from something. See how much stillness there is when we're not busy trying to get rid of something or trying to get something else. Feel how much openness there is when we don't feel compelled to either judge or get lost in our beliefs and our need to alter and modify. That kind of happiness, it's not the happiness of pleasure, of getting, it's the happiness of being awake. And that happiness brings great calmness and our eyes are opened. There's a certain innocence in our seeing And in that happiness and that trust, letting go is something that happens just very organically, without any forcing and without any rejection. Letting go is an organic expression of trust in oneself, of trust in one's own possibilities. And in that happiness, we understand what it means really to be awake. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with compassion. We just have two minutes together quietly, please.